Bibles, I want to invite you to grab them and turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, this week I got one of those phone calls uh, that you never like uh, to receive. It started with a text that uh, just said, Jarrett, will you call me? It's about Mary. The text was from the niece of a woman that uh, has been like a grandmother to me, more importantly, been a prayer warrior uh, for me for the last 20 years. And so uh, I picked up the phone and called and heard, knew what I was going to hear on the other line, and that was Mary uh, Anderwald was her name. I called her grandma. Uh, at the age of 85, she had had a bout with pneumonia and had died and went to be with the Lord. And Debbie and I had just talked to her about a month ago. We called her uh, just to uh, encourage her and uh, see how she was doing. And, you know, eternity is only going to tell what this woman's prayers uh, have done in my life uh, over time. Uh, she would wake up every morning at 4 o'clock, spend time alone with the Lord. I didn't even know God was up that early. Uh, but she would spend time alone with the Lord at 4 o'clock, and I was probably one of many that was on her routine prayer list. And I've been thinking a lot about her this week, her impact, uh, the influence uh, that she had on my life. And because of her death, it's caused me to think uh, just about my own mortality. And death does that, doesn't it? Uh, when you uh, lose a friend or a loved one, one who has passed on, you go to a funeral and I believe this is why funerals and home goings are so healthy for the soul in many ways. You're not just giving honor to the person who has died, but uh, it is serving as a reminder to you. It forces us to think about our own death and in turn make us reflect on our own lives. Are we living for that which really matters? You've heard the statistic, and I want to highlight it here at the outset of the message, but one out of every one person's will die. It's a fact. Uh, Psalm chapter 90, uh, verse 10 and 12, the years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away, verse 12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Today's message does just that. It compels us to number our days, to consider our physical lives, that they are, as the Scripture says, a mist, a vapor. James, in his New Testament letters, said, we appear for a little while and then we are gone. And while no one likes to talk about death, we avoid the subject, talking about it, thinking about it, thinking that if we will avoid it, it will avoid us. But we know that's not possible, and as a pastor, I don't like preaching about the reality of death, but it's sort of in the job description. And as believers in Jesus Christ, it's a joy and honor to be able to say, as believers, we know that death is really just the beginning to everlasting life. And so as your pastor, I have a role to play, to encourage, to shepherd, to guide, to warn, and to talk about subjects like death, which our text deals with today. The title of the message is A Word of Salvation. We are on our way to Easter, and we're unpacking the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Scripture records seven last words of Jesus, last statements that he makes. And 
Uh, if you have a red letter edition of your Bible, they are in red to designate them as the words of Christ. But we know they're also in red because on the cross, Jesus was pouring out his blood for the sins of the world. And I want us to look at our text, Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32, the Bible says this, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, this is statement number one, a word of forgiveness, we looked at it last week, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There is also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, second statement from the cross, words in red, a word of salvation. Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. From the beginning of time, man has innately known, believed deep within, that there is something more after death. And this makes sense because God created us, He hardwired us with eternity in our soul. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 puts it like this, He has put eternity into man's heart. Every religion out there in the world doesn't deny the belief in an afterlife. The debate surrounds what is the afterlife like. And our text today teaches the Christian worldview on what happens once we die. And in today's message, we're going to discover three truths. One is, who can have this life after death? Who's it for? Secondly, we're going to look at how we can attain and be assured of life after death. And then third, we're going to look at what life after death is going to be like. Now, the Bible uses the term saved to denote someone who is assured of life after death. They have put their faith and trust in Jesus, His work on the cross and in the resurrection. And because of their faith and trust in Christ, their sins have been forgiven. They have been made right with God. That person is known as being saved at the very moment of trusting in Jesus, we experience salvation. Let me give you some scriptural examples of this terminology, salvation, saved, being used in the scripture. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the Bible says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in prison, and they're up at midnight worshiping and praising the Lord, and God sends an earthquake, and the jail rattles, and uh, the, the bars fall off, and the guard, the jailer that is there, knows what is going to happen if these prisoners escape, and he's about to kill himself, and Paul says, don't do that, and so the jailer rushes in 
And the scripture says, Acts chapter 16, verse 30 and 31, then he, the jailer, brought them out, Paul and Silas, and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He must have heard their worship, what they were crying out to God and knew he wasn't right with God. What must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, not might be saved, not could be saved. You will be saved. And verse 13 goes on to say, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. One more, Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. From the Christian worldview, anyone who wants to experience life after death must be saved. And so the question I want us to reflect on, and it's a question that every single person listening to me today in this room, online, you have to answer it for yourself, put it in first person, it's this question, am I saved. Now there are some here today, maybe you're new to church, invited by a friend or new to the area and just decided to come in the church. You're new to this whole thing and you're thinking, saved? I didn't know I was lost. And that's okay. I want you to hang with me. You're in the right spot. Because hopefully by the end of today, this concept that may be foreign to you, being saved, made right with God, maybe it'll become a little bit more clear. There's others of you like me. You grew up in the church, trusted Christ at an early age, and I can remember after trusting Jesus at 11, I got into my teenage years in high school, and I would always doubt my salvation. Did God really save me? Did I really believe those words that I prayed? Is this something that I'm just believing because I grew up in it? And I can remember when God was working this call to ministry in my heart, I thought, you know what? There's student ministers, and there's children's ministers, and there's worship pastors, and you know what I'm going to be a minister to? I'm going to be a minister to doubters because that's who I was. Always wondering, God, did you really save me? Uh, I would listen to a preacher, and they'd be preaching, and he'd say, do you know that you know that you know that you know? And I would think, I did until you put it like that. (laughs) So maybe you're here, and you've doubted your salvation. Well, today I hope uh, this message encourages you and strengthens your faith to help you know how secure your salvation is in Christ. And then there's others of you, you know, there's no doubt about it. You know, you know that you know that you know that you know that you are saved. And prayerfully, today will be a reinforcement and a reminder of just how good God is to save you from your sins. Wherever you fall, I want to Unpack this one point at a time. First, let's look at what this text teaches about who can be saved. Let's answer this question. If this passage teaches us anything, it teaches us that anyone is a candidate for salvation. The Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified between two criminals. By the way, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. If you read Isaiah chapter 53 in the Old Testament, 700 years before Jesus would ever be born, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 11 and 12, said that the Messiah would be numbered with transgressors. And the Bible teaches that Jesus on that cross is 
numbered with transgressors, one on his right, one on his left. Matthew and Mark refers to these two criminals, these two men as robbers. The word there is evildoers. To put it in today's vernacular, we would call them thugs. He's crucified between these two thugs. They're revolutionaries, probably, most likely insurrectionists. And well, we don't know the exact crime that they committed. We do know that it was severe enough to receive Rome's harshest punishment, which was death by crucifixion. Now, both criminals, we are told, hurled insults at Jesus. Luke's gospel says that one of the criminals that were hanging there railed insults at him, but Mark's gospel highlights a different aspect of this and says both of them were hurling insults. Listen to Mark's account in Mark chapter 15, verses 27 through 32. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others and cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then look at the last part of verse 32. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. It's amazing to think about, really, one of these criminals went from reviling Jesus in one moment to what we saw in Luke's gospel coming to his defense in the next moment. In one moment, one of these criminals is saying, save yourself and save us, and in the very next moment, he's saying, remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, okay, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, if there was ever a deathbed conversion, this is it. And if there was ever a person, just think about this, if there was ever a person that was an unworthy candidate for salvation, it's this criminal. And just think about it. He's been reviling Jesus, cursing Jesus. There's nothing he could do to repay Jesus. When Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, it's not as if that criminal is going to have a life of serving him or giving to him or good works. He'd be dead in a matter of hours. He admits that he was guilty, so we know he was unwise in the choices that he made, evil in the choices that he made. This guy didn't deserve salvation at all, and yet in the 11th hour, he calls out to Jesus to save him, and Jesus gives him the exact same reward, promises him the exact same reward that he promised his closest disciples in John chapter 14, that I'm going away, but where I am, you will be also. Grace sure doesn't sound fair, does it? And it's not. Now this guy, who didn't deserve salvation at all, we're going to talk about here in just a moment what changed in this man. But again, I just want us to sit in this for a moment. We're talking about and answering who can be saved. And this man is exhibit A. As an example 
to all of us that anyone can be saved. Anyone. I have a routine every morning. I wake up and I make a beeline for that coffee maker. Love it. And I get my cup of coffee and I go into my study and while I'm still waking up, I usually peruse a few different websites. You know, I go to Fox News to see what the right's saying. Go to CNN, see what the left's saying. Live in two different worlds, telling the same thing, different way. Make my way to the Houston Chronicle and uh, see what's going on in H-Town. See how bad the Rockets lost the night before. <laughs> then I go to a couple different Christian websites. I like seeing what's going on in the world from a Christian perspective. I'll go to Christian Post, and usually I'll check out Christianity Today. And this week, there was an article in Christianity Today it was written by Philip Yancey. Now, Philip Yancey, when I, uh, early on in my call to ministry, I'm talking as a junior and senior in high school, I remember getting his books, and his first one was, What's So Amazing About Grace? And uh, he wrote another one, The Jesus I Never Knew. Great author. And uh, this article that Philip Yancey wrote in Christianity Today, uh, it was titled, The Gift I Didn't Ask For. And he goes on to write, and this was his public outing, if you will, that he had just been diagnosed with Parkinson's. And Philip Yancey, the great Christian writer, he said this, I've written many words on suffering and now being called to put them into practice. May I be a faithful steward of this latest chapter. And I, I read that about Yancey and I've always appreciated his ministry, and it just jogged my mind to remember his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. I read this back as a junior, senior in high school, I believe. And I remember chapter 8. It's amazing what your, your mind remembers. At chapter 8, because I was studying Luke chapter 23. In chapter 8 in Philip Yancey's book, I couldn't wait to get to the office to pull it off the shelf. I opened it up, and chapter 8 was dog-eared. And I began to read this chapter once again because it's so correlated with what we read here in Luke chapter 23. And Yancey begins to tell the story of Jeffrey Dahmer, the mass murderer, the serial killer who was known for cannibalizing his victims. By all accounts, an evil man. He was arrested and sentenced in 1991 to 15 consecutive life sentences. And in 1994, November, a fellow inmate killed him and another inmate that were performing some work duties there in the prison. Seven months before his death, though, it's reported, Yancey was writing about this, and Dahmer had given several interviews that seven months before his death, he had put his faith in Christ. He had received some Christian literature from some chaplains and began reading it, and then a Church of Christ minister went to visit him and began to answer his questions, and ultimately baptized him in the prison whirlpool. The chaplain was a man named Roy Ratcliffe, and he met with him every Wednesday for Bible study. After Dahmer died, Ratcliffe spoke at his funeral, and this is what he said. Jeff confessed to me his great remorse for his crimes. He wished he could do something for the families of his victims to make it right, but there was nothing he could do. He turned to God because there was no one else to turn to. But he showed great courage in his daring to ask the question, is heaven for me too? 
I think many people are resentful of him for asking that question, but he dared to ask and he dared to believe the answer. Now, was Dahmer sincere? I have no idea. Only God knows his heart. But some of us would listen to this and look at this and go, come on, heaven for Jeffrey Dahmer? You're telling me he's in the same place as Billy Graham? He's in the same place as Mother Teresa? Jeffrey Dahmer? Now, I'm just saying what this text teaches us today is that Jeffrey Dahmer is just as much a candidate for the grace and mercy of God as this thief on the cross. The testimony of Scripture and of life is full of God-saving, unlikely candidates. You remember Paul, don't you? He was a murderer. He admitted to holding the coats of the men who stoned that leader in the church, Stephen. And Paul would write of himself, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. Now I look at my life and I think, Paul, I've got you beat. I'm the chief of sinners. And I bet Jeffrey Dahmer looked at his life He said, I got everybody beat. I'm the chief of sinners. And I bet that criminal looked at his life and he said, no, I'm the chief of sinners. And I got good news for you today. If you're here this morning, you're saying, no, I'm the chief of sinners. It's good news because the gospel is anyone can be saved. Anyone. The Bible says, whosoever will. Whosoever will, let him come. And so who can be saved? The answer is anyone. Secondly, let's look at and answer this question. How are we saved? Now, something changed in this man's life. We don't know what led to his change of heart, but we can certainly draw some conclusions. First, he observed Jesus. He saw him being beaten and mocked and ridiculed and spit upon. What he didn't see was any anger swelling up in Jesus. He heard people cursing Jesus and mocking him. And what he didn't hear was Jesus cursing them back. Instead, all he heard was what we looked at last week, cries of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Maybe what caused this criminal to just pause and consider that Jesus was was different was not just in observing his life, but maybe it was that sign That was above the cross. Did you notice Luke included this little detail? Verse 38, there was an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. John fills us in, colors in the details. Chapter 19, verse 16, the second part, it'll be on the screen. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, a very public place where everybody could see it. And it was written in Aramaic, Jesus' native language. It was written in Latin, the language of the world. It was written in Greek, the common language of the day. Everybody could read it. 
So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. We don't know why Pilate all of a sudden got some courage and bowed up. But he said, this is, this is what I'm going to write. And he draws the line in the sand. He has them write, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Someone rightly referred to this sign on the cross as the first gospel tract. And maybe the criminal whose life is changing right before our very eyes sees that sign. It says, Jesus. And his very name means Yahweh saves. Jesus. Remember when he was born, the angels announced it? Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. One commentator noted. In his birth, he was surrounded by animals in a barn, in a stable. At his death, he's surrounded by animals of another kind. What did the angel say? You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Maybe in seeing this sign and seeing his names, name, and this is one of the only times in Scripture, incidentally, that someone refers to Jesus by his name that is not in a close relationship with him. Oftentimes, it was teacher or rabbi, but here this criminal calls it out, Jesus. Maybe just in saying his name, he was crying out for the salvation that was offered him. Jesus, remember me. Max Licato, in his book, Six Hours, One Friday, he ponders what led to this man's change of heart. Listen to how Max writes, as only he can. He, the criminal, looks at the huddle of soldiers throwing dice in the dirt, gambling for a ragged robe. He sees a sign above Jesus' head. It's painted with sarcasm, king of the Jews. They mock him as a king. If he were crazy, they would ignore him. If he had no followers, they'd turn him away. If he were nothing to fear, they wouldn't kill him. You only kill a king if he has a kingdom. Could it be? Reality is we don't know what led to this man's change of heart. But what we do know is this criminal in this moment teaches us how we can be saved. You want to know how you can be saved? First, acknowledge our sin. That's what this criminal did. Verse 41, we indeed justly, we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. This criminal is saying guilty. I am guilty as charged. You don't see him making excuses. You don't see him blaming his mom and dad for where he is. You don't see him being a product, blaming of being a product of his environment. He owns his sin. He acknowledges it. We're getting what we deserve. And the very first thing this man does is acknowledge his sinfulness. And this is the first step in biblical salvation. It's understanding that you are, understanding that I am, that we are all sinners. The Bible says, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. Commentator Donald Barnhouse said this, this must be the position of anyone who's going to be saved. As long as we cling to our own selves and think that there is even a shred of righteousness in ourselves that could satisfy the demands of a holy God, there is no possibility for salvation. But when we recognize that we have sinned, then we are in a position of those who may obtain mercy. I want you to notice he doesn't just acknowledge his sin. He acknowledges the innocence of Jesus. That's the second part of verse 41. 
We're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but look at what he says. But this man has done nothing wrong. When we acknowledge our sin, we're acknowledging that Jesus is innocent. That he is the holy, blameless son of God. And this is what the spirit of God was allowing this criminal to articulate even if he didn't understand the fullness of what he was even saying. And look, underneath the surface, we're seeing what's happening. We're seeing what's happening in this conversation between this criminal and Jesus. But if you were to peel back and see what's going on in the invisible world, what we would know is that the Spirit of God is drawing this man to Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God is drawing this man to salvation. And without God drawing this man to salvation, none of us are saved. Without God drawing you to salvation, none of us are saved. What we have to do when we sense the Spirit of God drawing us is make sure that our hearts are soft and we say yes to the Spirit of God. To say no to it is to harden our heart. That's why Hebrews warns, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. When you say no to the Spirit of God wooing you and calling you, what happens is your heart becomes callous like dead skin. And it's not that the Spirit of God doesn't speak to you anymore. It's that you said no to the Spirit of God for so long that your heart's dead to it. That's why today is so sacred and serious because right now the Spirit of God could be drawing you to salvation. You are in your sins. If you were to die today, you wouldn't go to paradise with the presence of God, but you would go away from the presence of God forever and ever and ever. And that's why if the Spirit of God is speaking to you and resonating in your heart, He's talking to you. You got to do something with it. Just a moment, we're going to give an invitation. Give you an opportunity to respond to the Spirit. Don't say no to the Spirit. Listen, both criminals saw Jesus. Both criminals heard Jesus. But only one, only one had a heart soft enough to respond to Jesus. J.C. Ryle, a great preacher from yesteryear, said both were equally near to Christ. Both saw and heard all that happened during the six hours that he hung on the cross. Both were dying men and suffering acute pain. Both were alike wicked sinners and needed forgiveness. Yet one died in his sins as he lived, hardened, impenitent, and unbelieving. The other repented, believed, and cried to Jesus for mercy and was saved. It's a beautiful picture here. We confess and acknowledge that we are sinners. At the same time, we confess and acknowledge that Jesus is sinless. And watch what happens at the cross. Jesus takes our guilt and our sin, and in return we get his righteousness. The reformer Luther said this is the great exchange. Summing up 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we are saved by acknowledging our sin, all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. And we are saved by acknowledging our need for a Savior. That's what this criminal did in verse 42 and 43. He acknowledged his need. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say today you will be with me in paradise. I want you to notice the simplicity of acknowledging a need for a Savior. This criminal didn't have to take a theology course. He didn't have to be confirmed. 
He didn't have to be baptized. He didn't have to repeat a prayer. His prayer was pretty simple. Remember me. Faith in Christ. We see the humility in this ask. By the way, none of us will come to Christ. None of us will acknowledge our need for a Savior if we have a prideful heart because we don't think we need it. But I want you to notice the humility. This man didn't say, I want recognition when we come into your kingdom. I want to be honored. That's what James and John said. I want to sit at your right, sit at your left. This man in his brokenness said, remember me. He knew he was out of all other options. See, that's the problem. Most of us don't come to faith in Christ because we're not out of options. But, But you ask the testimony of predominantly adults who come to Jesus late in life, more often than not, it's because they were out of options. A trial, a trouble came into their life and they're on their back and it forces them to look up. This man... He knew he was desperate, he knew he needed to be saved, and he knew he couldn't save himself, and so in simple faith, he turns to Jesus and says, remember me. And how does Jesus respond? Today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He says, truly, put the word amen, confirmed. Take it to the bank. You will be with me in paradise. Today, not tomorrow. You'll be with me in paradise, not some holding area where you make amends for your life. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Who can be saved? Anyone. How are we saved? By acknowledging our sin and acknowledging our need for a Savior. And then third and finally, let's answer this question. What awaits those who are saved? Well, in one word, paradise. term can be used interchangeably. Another name for heaven. Another name for the Garden of Eden. It was called paradise. And why is it called paradise? I mean, yes, it speaks to the beauty of its surroundings. Paradise is a place where all of our needs will be met. It's a place of perfection. No sin. Be holy, good. But you want to know what makes paradise? Paradise? It's where the presence of God dwells with man. Unhindered fellowship with God. That's paradise. When Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise, he is telling this man that today we're going to be an up-close, personal fellowship. Me and you, forever and ever. And this is what we have to look forward to. Because when we die, like Grandma Mary Anderwall, Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's paradise. And one day, the promise of Scripture is that Jesus will return and he will establish a paradise 
where we will live and rule with him forever and ever and ever. Revelation chapter 21, verses one through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's paradise. And he will wipe away. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. A word of salvation written in red, the red blood of Jesus, so that we could be saved. Amen? Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforest.org slash connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus, in person, on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.